So today, we're going to look at what it, uh, what it is for us to fight the good fight. And we've been in this series that we've been looking at theological topics and then how that kind of changes the way that we view life or the way that we live. And we've entitled that, that whole series, How Then Shall We Live? So in light of God being the creator, how should we live? In light of God re- of revealing himself in the scriptures, how should we live how should we live in, in view of the image of God, providence of God, God being a redeeming God and his grace? Uh, but this week, we're going to take on a topic uh, that is a little different, um, and it's one either you really, really love or it's one that you ignore entirely. Uh, so it is the end times. And uh, so after this week, there are two more Sundays in this series Uh, and basically two more Sundays before my sabbatical. So the question I get every week is, when's your sabbatical? Or Todd is asked, hey, are you preaching this week? Uh, That happens, um, so July 11th will be my last Sunday before my sabbatical. Um, And over these next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the chief end of man, the chief purpose of mankind, uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're going to take those two parts over the next two weeks. And then Todd will be starting... Uh, a, a look at the book of Mark uh, during that time of sabbatical and others kind of helping Todd during that. So all that to say, today, the end times. And how does that impact how we live? So uh, we're going to look at that through the lens of 1 Timothy 6, and then we're going to reference uh, other things rather than look at Revelation and have to explain a whole lot of stuff and never get to the how then shall we live part. So uh, we're going to start here and go there rather than start there and look backwards. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to be, begin at verse 6. Would you stand with us just as we express our submission uh, to the word of God? He speaks, we long to hear from him. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, his, his young protege. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus and of Christ Jesus, who is, uh, who is his testimony before, or in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, 
To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Uh, God, we just ask that you would be in our midst. God, that you would be uh, the one who is uh, truly sovereign over all things. That you would be king of kings. That you would be the Lord of lords. Father, thank you uh, that what is our future, what is to come, will frame uh, how we live today. God, be with us. I pray that, uh, that you would just give us great insight into a topic that um, truly many people are uh, avoiding or afraid of thinking about or just don't get it. Uh, God, give us insight from your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Armageddon, the rapture, the apocalypse, and signs of the times, right? You know, when the church today thinks about the end times, there just seems to be utter confusion and mystery. You know, many would say, I don't even want to think about it uh, because it's so strange and difficult to understand. Uh, Yet, when people think of the end times, uh, you know, many say, you know what, we're just going to disappear from the world via the rapture until the world is destroyed and burned up. We're going to hang out. Uh, in heaven so that we can just start over when God makes a a new heavens and a new earth. But if that's your end times theology, I would imagine that you inevitably struggle to see why living in this world matters today. If it's just Jesus is going to teleport us out and burn everything up, then why does today matter? So it's a legitimate question. What difference does it make you know, to hang out, you know, when we, until we can get on with the real Christian life. Now, regardless of details, what's interesting about many believers in the United States uh, is that either you're kind of really, really concerned with the end times and really looking, and at times uh, you can kind of be one that is trying to find signs of the times everywhere and everything trying to read the times, trying to understand what God's doing. And at its core, there's nothing wrong with that. But yet we, we've all kind of maybe possibly been uh, around somebody or ourselves that has been just consumed with trying to figure out the time when Jesus is going to return, to which Jesus says no one knows the time or the hour. The only thing he uh, instructs us on in terms of looking at that is be ready. Be ready for Jesus's return. Now, you, you might not fall into that camp. Maybe you're on the other side where you just have given up and ceased to think about it at all. You know what? I don't read Revelation. It's too crazy. Uh, whatever happens is going to happen. And Jesus is coming back. He's going to win. 
and that's all I need, right? But when we, when we kind of toss it to obscurity, we miss so much of what the authors of Scripture seem to address quite frequently, you know, uh, and often the lens by which the Christian life is viewed is through the lens of the end of time, the end of this age, the return of Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, and Todd preached this, uh, I don't know, about a year ago, and it was basically about the return of Christ and what, will, what that will usher in. And Paul's, Paul's concluding comment about all of this was to encourage each other with these words. So if, if Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians and he's describing the return of Christ and what is going to occur and happen at that point, and then says, encourage each other with this, and then we're going to toss it to obscurity, that ought not be the way we go. One author, uh, actually it was in um, a devotional on the Crusade or Crew website, he says, when we fail to keep in the forefront of our thinking that Christ may return at any moment, we can lose a sense of anticipation, hope, urgency, and eternal perspective. We can become mired in the here and now. And as, as especially as difficult things end up in our lives, it's really easy to end up in a place where the here and now matters exclusively and we can't see beyond our circumstances. You know, but the, what the return of Christ is, and this whole study, I'm going to change my word from end times, and I'm going to start using the word eschatology because it's much more full, it's a fuller sense of what we're talking about. Now, eschaton is the end, and ology is the study of, okay? So it's the study of the, the end of time that we are in now, or the end of this age. But it's, it's more than just the, the end of Revelation. The study of eschatology, the study of the end, is what gives us perspective. It's kind of one of the th- reasons I love this area, uh, is that there tends to be uh, grandparents around many families. You know, I grew up in Tampa, where nobody was from there, Right? Uh, and, you know, uh, we were, you know, a thousand miles away from my grandparents. Uh, and I grew up there, and there was rarely a family of multi-generations. It just really didn't exist very much there. But I love that about this area, not exclusively, but there's a lot of grandparents around. And what that gives to our, to our kids, the grandkids, is perspective. That what you know, they can be so easy, uh, easily drawn into is to see life only according to their lens of interpretation. But what do grandparents bring is decades of experience and perspective uh, that is really helpful. I think in a similar way, the, uh, the understanding of eschatology, the understanding of what does Jesus say, what do the scriptures teach about the end of this age and the, re- the return of Jesus is huge for our Christian walk. So, uh, so for, for us, we're going to kind of look through 1 Timothy 6, and I think what we have to understand in terms of eschatology is that this period of history that we're in right now, you can say it's not history because it's now. Okay, I get it. But this period of time, this period of history, culminates with the return of Christ. That's huge because if we miss that, then you're only interpreting now or today in terms of today, or maybe even God's work 
in today, but there is somewhere that time or history is going. So 1 Timothy 6, uh, that Paul is charging Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until what? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So, so he's, Paul is charging Timothy, and, and it would be enough for him to, hey, Timothy, guard the commandment, guard the confession, guard the things that have been given to you, guard the faith, keep up the, fight the, fight the good fight, keep on keeping on. But the perspective by which he gives him that is until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you could say, well, that's just a figure of time. Well, actually, I want to submit to you that it actually frames how he will do it. Not just, hey, just keep on until Jesus comes back. And that's how we tend to talk. But it is, do these things in light of Jesus coming back and do them urgently until he does. It's a different perspective rather than just a state of time. It frames how we do it. Because we do it with the end in mind. And so in verse 17, uh, you know, as for the rich in what? What's the, the time uh, d- description is the, in this present age. So this present age is contrasted against what in the scriptures? Is contrasted against the age to come. So there's a bunch of different ways, you know, this age, now, uh, these times, um, all of this, all of that kind of phraseology is speaking about today. But the age to come, uh, the, the, the kingdom that will be ushered in, all of these different phrases are about what is coming. And so this matches the testimony of the scriptures. Don't think for one minute this idea shows up in Revelation only. It started from the very beginning that creation and God's work had an eternal perspective from the very beginning. You know, you kind of see God's covenant promise, and there's this word that keeps showing up in all these promises, and it's forever. You're like, that? Interesting. You know, one, he speaks to King David about his kingdom, and he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's an interesting promise. It's not just for your lifetime, even the lifetime of your generation. Forever, King David's kingdom is going to endure. And so where we are in history is we're kind of in the middle between what what begins and accomplishes the victory of Christ, that's the cross, resurrection, uh, the perfect life of Jesus, and then the, the ultimate fulfillment or consummation of that. We live in the middle between these two things. Some have termed what is begun with the cross and resurrection of Jesus is called inaugurated eschatology, or basically eschatology that has begun And then uh, kind of uh, what is described in future times, the age to come, as future eschatology. And why is that distinction needed is because if you only put this concept in the distant future, some millennia down the road, and all of that, it will never impact your life today. Jesus has already begun the end times. 
we're living in an eschatological, that's, anyway, uh, that's a seminary term, sorry, uh, in an eschatological time that now it has to be viewed in terms of eternity because Jesus has already started the clock. Now, uh, so this period culminates with the return of Christ, but then we're going to see that our eternal future frames our lives today. That eschatology ought to frame our life because our life is, much, is part of a much greater, much bigger story, right? Do you ever feel like, you know what, my life doesn't matter. You're kind of going through life, and what difference does it make, and what— your life is a, is a part of a much greater story. You're not the end of your own story. And so when we start to think of our lives in terms of the greater story of God, then we get to verses like 18 and 19 of our passage. Now he's speaking to people who happen to have a lot of means uh, in this world. Okay, I think that speaks very well uh, to... Uh, the Western church, meaning the Western of the world, uh, the church in uh, much of the United States. He says these people are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Okay? Okay. So our eternal future frames our lives today because he's speaking right to people who have the ability to trust not in God, but to trust in their riches. Now, the ability, or you know, we all understand the, the fleeting nature of that, but isn't it just so easy for people of means to just rest on means? But yet, what, it, what is he challenging Timothy to teach is that they are storing up Storing up is a present action with future effect. To store up uh, for the future, that they would have a good foundation. A couple verses later is that they would guard the deposit that God made. So that they would, because some have swerved away from the truth. Uh, But then he says, take hold, take hold of that which is truly life. So a person of riches, a person of wealth, a person of means can be very easily duped into the idea that life is found in their wealth. And Paul is saying to Timothy that, that, uh, that in how they live, in how these people live in light of eternity, they, they store up treasures for themselves in their future, in eternity, so that they can grab a hold of what is truly life rather than what they are prone to trust in. What's interesting is that idea of taking hold is the same word as in verse 12, where Paul's telling Timothy, you know, fight the good fight. And then he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, Timothy's already a believer, and yet he's being told to, uh, being told to take hold of that eternal life. Like, the eternal life of what we are going to enjoy with God for eternity, Paul is saying, take hold of it now so that it would change how we live. And so what does it look like? Well, you brought nothing into this world, and you will bring nothing out. That current life is framed by the life to come. And if we kind of skew that, 
then we're then we are totally consumed with what's right in front of us or consumed with what you have and what you can trust in and what you can make life work out and so uh so eschatology brings us hope and not fear if you start to read revelation it's really easy to uh end up like whoa you know you, you have a lot of fear of the future not really much hope for the future right you know big wars kind of you know the dragons and uh you know all this stuff and there's gonna be a battle and a war and uh but it's really easy uh to to think you know um that all of that is going to bring fear one writer david murray i don't have the quote up there he said that if our eschatology the study of these things does not result in greater worship of god we are either in error or we are approaching the truth in a wrong spirit. If it doesn't result in greater worship, I would even take his word and go one step further, in greater worship that brings hope, if you end up in fear thinking about the end times, we're probably missing the message of the scriptures because remember, Paul told Timothy, encourage each other with these words. The book of Revelation was written to churches that were in heavy persecution to encourage them not to give them more fear but yet we look at it in terms of fearfulness eschatology brings us hope why is because the victory is already won we live in light of that victory jesus has won the deciding battle at the cross and resurrection and yet we will see the ultimate victory of the war in the age to come we live in the middle between those two places so what's what's interesting is why would that bring us hope is because our god that is descript, described here that's going to show up and he will be displayed at the proper time this next description of who is who our our god is is really interesting he who is blessed who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords the one uh, who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion that jesus at his return when he is revealed in the proper time he is coming as the one who dwells in unapproachable light like in a sense he's coming and uh, people will be blinded by uh, maybe not literally by his radiance no one can ever see or can see he's coming to with an eternal dominion he's coming to rule and to reign that ought to give us hope but here's what's interesting do you feel do you ever feel like like the gospel is going backwards today like right now 2021 you know all the stuff that's been rolling over the last decade like man we're really losing ground here but yet if the deciding victory has already been won at the cross and the resurrection and jesus is proceeding to the ultimate rule and reign dominion over all things then right now jesus is not losing but our eyes say you know what he might be the scriptures are saying he's not he is patiently waiting for his return he is patiently waiting to what the book of revelation talks about and this is where it gets sobering to come back as a wine press with his wrath 
That is a gruesome picture. When Jesus returns, first, his first coming, he came as a baby. When he returns, he is coming as a warrior on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, I'm assuming that's probably an image of power and of war and of conquering and dominion, that he will set everything right again. Regardless, Jesus is coming back. And that ought to bring God's people uh, great hope because it's not as if he's distant now. He is still at work today. So, uh, so it ought to bring us great hope. But then let's see, how does it bring, our eschatology bring urgency to the matter? Verse 9 of chapter 6 says, But those who desire to, to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It would be one thing if this sentence ended with, you know, help those people because they're kind of getting tripped up in life. Help those people because, you know, they're focused on the wrong things. Where does, where does focus and the temptation of riches or the snare of this world lead us is to ruin and destruction. Now, that ought to give us all sorts of pause because, uh, you know, teach people to be content is another word that's used in this passage. Uh, because of the future, the snare, because of their desire to be rich, it leads to ruin and destruction. The return of Jesus is not merely his victory. The return of Jesus brings back the throne of judgment on mankind as well. Now, I get it. In the United States, God is love. That's like, you know, we'll preach that. But God is a God who will judge sin, a God who will pour out his wrath. That gets less run in our country because it is far less agreeable to many people. But ruin and destruction are real for people who trust in anything other than Jesus. If you're trusting in and saying, you know what, life matters because of what I have, riches, you plunge yourself into ruin and destruction. If you're trusting in, you know what, all the pleasures of this world and experiences, and you're going to chase happiness and fulfillment, and you're going to chase everything other than Jesus, you're destined for ruin and destruction. And when we start to think about that, our urgency, if you know Christ and you know people who don't, what happens to your urgency is that it rises, right? A friend of mine, when he was speaking on this, uh, uh, he was talking about uh, what would it be like, what kind of urgency would we have if we were there before the tsunami in the Indian Ocean of 2004? Do you remember, uh, or maybe, you know, for students, you might not even been alive at that time, but back in 2004, the, the, the tsunami of the Indian Ocean destroyed communities, destroyed, I mean, man, just devastation where 230,000 people died. But if you knew the tsunami was coming, how would you talk to people who were staying at the resort on the beach? What would you say to them? You know, hey, um, you know, I know you're enjoying your vacation, 
but there is this tsunami that's going to kill a quarter of a million people. It's coming. And you might, you know, might think about, you know, departing and going for high. But isn't that really what God's people do? We've been given grace on top of grace. We're not wiser or smarter than anybody else. God has taken scales off of our eyes and threw them on the ground so that blind people can now see. Dead hearts that serve ourselves only. God has come in and done amazing surgery and put a new heart of, of softness toward God. He's given us this understanding and this wisdom. It's only from the Spirit of God. And yet, we know a tsunami of God's judgment is coming. You know, you might want to step away from the water. And make... What kind of urgency comes when we're willing to say the future and our eternal future ought to frame how we live today? It's going to raise our urgency, certainly. But then how does it change how we live? So for God's people who profess faith in Christ, for how we live is verse 10. Hey, the root of, or the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's not the root. It is a root of all kinds of evils. Uh, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Basically, they've done themselves harm. They've, they've uh, potentially kind of steered towards ruin and destruction because of the love of the things of this world. Money just happens to be his example. It's amazing how easily God's people can become enamored with this world and its blessings. So where is your heart's focus right now in your life? What's the thing you think about most? What's the thing that you can't wait to do next? What's the thing that, uh, where's your heart? Is it in this age or is, is it in the age to come? And then lastly and very quickly, that our eschatology motivates us to action. Because what's interesting is the most common thought on eschatology in the United States right now is actually, um, it's a, here's the phrase, you can Google it, it's dispensational premillennialism. Okay? The kicker is, is that thought process of, of theology has only taken root since the Civil War. The most common eschatology right now is very new in its history. And what it, what it brings about is, is that sense where the rapture is going to take us out of this world. Jesus is going to come back and destroy everything. And it basically makes us passive now because today really doesn't matter. And I don't think that's the message of the scriptures at all. That we become passive uh, ones who just long and wait for God to do his thing. I think eschatology, the look at the return of Christ that is biblical and, and motivational, is what Paul says to Timothy in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold now of the eternal life that you are promised, and fight the good fight of the faith. Eschatology ought to motivate us to act, not to be passive, not to just wait until all of this is scrapped and start over, because in true fashion, 
Jesus' body wasn't destroyed, it was resurrected. It was redeemed, it was renewed, it was restored. And just after the pattern of the resurrection will be the pattern of this restored world. That, uh, That rather than it just being wiped out and a new one come, the new heavens and the new earth is a redeemed, restored creation where Jesus is reigning on his throne. And they said there is no, Revelation 22 says, there is no need for the sun because the radiance of the Son of God gives off so much light. That is a creation I want to, I long to see. We live in this place right now longing for the, for the restoration and the redeeming of all things. Our eschatology, what's to come, ought to motivate us. It ought to change us. It ought to give us urgency today. Rather than we just hang on and wait till, wait till the end of time, and then we can get on with the real Christian life. Just like Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith today. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Live it out. It motivates us to action. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, be with us. God, as we read books like Revelation, and yes, there is confusing things there. There's apocalyptic literature, uh, imagery, that sometimes is just really hard to get our, our minds around. Father, in all of that, would we see your glory? Would you, we see you being the one that reigns over all things? God, you are the one who, is, who has won the victory, and you will win the war. We will see that in eternity. But right now, God, help us not lose heart. Help us not lose hope. Help us to live active lives for the glory of God. Father, that we would fight the good fight of faith, that we would take hold of eternal life. God, that we would not just be ones that are just waiting, but God, that we would be radically living out for the glory of God. Uh, Father, challenge us in these things, and I thank you for your word, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.